Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. We heard the scripture already from uh, the Advent celebration, and now we will read it again. It's, we're going to have a succession of texts here in Advent from uh, the prophecies of our Messiah. Now, this week we take it from the Jewish prophet uh, Isaiah, the 11th chapter, uh, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said this week, Jody, was that a new liturgy? It wasn't, huh? Okay. I should tell you that uh, the liturgy we use was something that my brother Nathan put together, and uh, we've been thinking about redoing it. And uh, all I can remember about the liturgy is every single Sunday we go the whole way through Luke 2. It just seems like that. I don't know. Anyhow, um, So we're going to go through the prophecies. And this week we're on this prophecy, and you've heard it twice read now. Um, It really is true that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. And we hear the word prophet, and we kind of say, oh, no, I don't want any corporate interests, you know. I'm I'm humble. I, I don't need a prophet, but... When scripture is profitable, it really does. Um, I remember Nick Schroeder, when he used to come to church here instead of down in uh, Knoxville, a large PCA church. um, He would go out occasionally, and as he left the room, he would look at me, and he would say, that was good, Tim, that was good. You just pushed the reset button. I really think that that's the way we should look at Scripture, that it pushes our reset button. Some of you don't remember that it used to be that computers would regularly freeze. And uh, maybe you have a a smart app or a smart appliance, and you have to push the reset button because sometimes it gets in this tight little circle of stupidity. And it just keeps, nothing you do, nothing will change it, you know. Push the reset button. And that's what scripture does. That's why it's profitable. It's so refreshing. A lot of my goal 
on social media is just to throw scripture everywhere I possibly can. What an antidote to the oppressive uh, injustices of the internet. And so we read this and it's like, oh, it's, everything about it is fresh and, and, and delightful. And I have to admit so much so that I just, sometimes I just get depressed when I see the contrast between scripture and my heart, my life, the world. And this morning is one of those times. Um, what I found particularly refreshing about this, and so often this is true of scripture, is that uh, it uses the most common illustrations from nature. And so I was channeling you, Charlie, this morning, and David Abisara, men that I've shared a love of trees with. And that's where the beginning of the text comes from. It comes from just the pedestrian, normal, common trees that we all live among. And it starts out, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So I got thinking about trees and the fact that what this is doing is it's pointing us to the family tree of the Messiah. So this whole thing is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And you have to understand that when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah because Christ in Greek is the anointed one. So Jesus the anointed one. I was reading this uh, history of, uh, of the Crusades last night, and in the history it refers to the fact that a certain man, when they came down and they took Antioch and they took Jerusalem um, back in about the beginning of the uh, 11th century or 12th century, when they did it, there were certain men who were over the area around Antioch, over the area around Jerusalem, and, and you know, they'd fight, some of them would be killed, then there would need to be another another man. And it's fascinating reading this history because all old history used to be written by people who, if they weren't Christians, thought they were. If you receive my meaning. Back in my younger years, everybody was a Christian. If you asked anybody if they were a Christian, their immediate response was to get angry with you. They would say, well, of course I'm a Christian. So when a pastor's asking you, are you a Christian? It's it's insulting you. Well, back in the old days, history used to be written by people who either were Christians or certainly were convinced they were, all right? And so now people are writing history and philosophy. Now people are claiming to be scholars who didn't start with the prince of sciences, which is theology, <laughs> you know? So we've removed theology from education and from the intellect, and so we're stupefied. You understand that. That's what Cardinal Newman says in the idea of the university. He says that theology is the prince of the sciences. You can't be educated until you start with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And so I'm reading this book written by this stupefied man. Now, it's the best history of the Crusades, okay? And I'm not trying to insult him, but he keeps stopping to explain the things that are just painfully obvious to any educated person, you know? Like, for instance, at the beginning, uh, he talks about how uh, back then people really believed in guilt and sin and thought they needed to prepare for death. And I was like, seriously, <laughs> you know, what a contrast with our world, you know. And so last night he was talking about the various machinations between this king and that king, and this guy dies. And, and then he says, and so the head of the Greek Orthodox Church thought that he would make it a, a, a theocracy and that he would be the head of the state and the head of the church, right? Which is, you know, what the people in Moscow want, you know. And so he said, uh, you know, I'm going to do this. But then the, the warrior actually got ahead of him and won some battles, right? And it's so fascinating because then he stops and explains that even though he had won the war, he had not yet been uh, set apart by the method that you have to set a warrior apart to be king. Well, immediately we think what? We think about Samuel doing what? Anointing David. And whether consciously or subconsciously, Saul knew that. <laughs> and he hated David because David had the imprimatur. David had the anointing of the church, which is to say Samuel, which is to say God, Samuel the prophet. And so we look at scripture and what we see is that all through the New Testament, and so what I was going to tell you was, so this military man who was set apart to be king then had to go to the head of the Greek Orthodox Church in the area and somehow talk him into anointing him so he had the approval of the church and the, the warrior status of the state, right? Jesus is called the Christ. Why? Because this indicates that he has the anointing of God. Okay? In America, we do something similar to this where we bring out the Bible on special occasions. And hypothetically, you know, this is supposed to be the anointing of God on our leaders, right? And so when we go through Scripture and we see this constant, the Christ, the Christ, the Christ, the Christ, you must think in your brain, the anointed one, the anointed one, the anointed one, the anointed one, or you won't begin to understand what's being said about Jesus in the New Testament. What's being said about him is he's the anointed one. And immediately you should say, well, what do you mean the anointed one? Well, he is the one that the entire Old Testament points to. We heard it today in the Advent reading where they were talking about, you know, you'll crush his head, you know, about the, the, the child that will be born of Eve. You heard it with Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be a blessing. The entire Old Testament points to this Jesus, okay? And here it points to the anointed one. And it says, it refers to him as a shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Very, very, very common illustration. When Mary Lee and I were up in Wisconsin, we had the ugliest tree that you could ever imagine in our backyard. And because it was so ugly, it was great for climbing for little children. 
because it had all these like ridiculous bumps and burls and limbs and crooks and you know and the thing about this this tree this tree was a basswood tree and I don't know if you know it but do you know the main use of basswood not to catch bass okay that was for Daniel he's got fish on his brain basswood's main use anybody know do you know they make the the throat suppressants what are the or the the tongue things out of basswood apparently but the thing you have to know about basswood is it's like olive and it is that if you cut this thing down you know what it's going to do it's for every tree you cut down it's going to send up 50 shoots that's why in in scripture when it talks about your wife will be like and all you know all your children will be like olive shoots that's because you cut it down and it just well this is what it's referring to here at the beginning it says a shoot will spring and the words it's translated stem but stump would be a better translation then a shoot will spring for the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots okay in other words it's talking family tree. You know, three of the top five software programs for genealogy have tree in them, okay? This is how we trace our lineage from a tree. A tree is a very involved, complicated thing, as many of your genealogies are, right? Okay, and so it's telling us here that there will be a shoot. Now, a shoot is a little whip. A shoot will spring up out of the stump and a branch will spring up out of the roots. Now, what does that say to you? Well, I, you know, some of you know that I have, one of my hobbies is to send my wife out to the garden to plant 50. <laughs> That's funny. It's not quite true. She helps me. Mary Lee humbles herself by gardening because I just love gardening, right? But I love other people to do it because I had to earn our living through seminary and so there's always this sort of work aspect to it for me, you know. One of the things I do is I go online and I buy from Arbor Day these packages of 50 of particular uh, bare root trees like redwoods. We have a couple out there that Josh Congrove planted. They come in little bags. You know, you're ordering 50 trees, 39 bucks for 50 trees. Oh, yeah, buddy. And so you order them, and they come in this little plastic bag. And then you go out, and you, you can plant them in a variety of ways, but you put them in the ground. How, how many of them survive? I'd say typically between a quarter and a third will survive. We've planted probably 200. I don't know why, but the ones we planted next to our house all survived. It's just the weirdest thing. Where it really mattered, they survived. But you plant them out there in the garden, and they just die and die and die. They're, all they are is a tiny little thin, I wouldn't even say that thick, thinner than my little finger and you put them in the ground, there's nothing on them. They're just, it's barely possible to see where you should stop planting them, where the dirt should stop. There's a little, what would it be called? 
I don't know what it's called, but it's, you can sort of see it. Now, here's the point. The whips, the tiny little plants, okay, are very vulnerable. All right? And they're very humble. And that's the point that's being made here. The point that's being made is that the coming Messiah is going to come out of nowhere and is going to be the great reversal. Do you get this? He's coming out of a sh- he's coming out of a stump. He's coming out of the roots. And he's a little whip. That's the reason that it says this. It says, then a shoot will spring from the stem of David. But it doesn't say that. It says Jesse. Why does it say Jesse? It says Jesse because Jesse was nothing. It it humiliates his lineage by speaking of Jesse instead of David. And so Jesse, rather than David, who was a king, Jesse matches the stump and the root. Do you see this? Now, why is it doing this? Well, it's doing this because immediately prior to this, uh, to this text, so, you know, we, we break the Bible up into chapters. And, and it, it's good in that it helps Stephen be a smarty pants and, 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 and immediately tell you the address. I always say to him, Stephen, would you, don't give me the address. Give me the text, <laughs> you know. And so... People that are numbers-minded can say, oh, that's Isaiah 10, 33, you know. Well, let me read to you what immediately precedes this, okay? At the end of the previous text, this is what it says. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now, does this sound weak and small? The Lord, the Lord of hosts shall lop the bow with terror. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. All right, right, you with me? And then a shoot will spring from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Listen, this is a very, very sweet text for those of you who are filled with guilt and weakness and fear that God doesn't know you and doesn't care. Those of you who are poor, and I mean poor financially, those of you who are confused and those of you who are facing death, there will be a great reversal. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so what it's doing at the end of the previous chapter is it's saying, okay, right now the Assyrians, they've got you. But God will deal with them. And so Assyria, the stand-in for Assyria here in this text is, are the cedars of Lebanon. And what were the cedars of Lebanon? They were the redwoods of northern California. The spruce trees of Alaska. Humongous trees. You know, redwoods somewhat 350 feet tall. 350 feet tall. Humongous. Drive a car through them. 
God's going to cut them down. And he's not going to deal with them with a rod of, uh, of wood. He's going to deal with them with a rod of iron. And then, out of nowhere, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Out of the stump and out of the roots springs a shoot springs a branch that will bear fruit. Now, you know I'm not going to miss an opportunity to talk about the, the, the inspiration of Scripture. Okay? I'm also not going to miss an opportunity to speak of the blessing of fruitfulness. And I keep telling you, don't sterilize your marriage bed. Okay? Because fruit is a blessing. And we see here just the uh, banal, the, the absolutely unheralded, heralded, the absolutely common, consistent theme of all of Scripture, which is fruit, is a word for blessing. Fruit, blessing, they're synonymous. And you see that here. And a branch from his roots will be sterile. No, will bear fruit. In other words, God's anointing will be on this little, little thing that springs up out of the stump and the root. And then it says, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now that's a pretty heavy statement, isn't it? The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Um, we take for granted this uh, but we really shouldn't, we shouldn't take it for granted that the Spirit of God rests on him. Now, think about what we're talking about here. Everybody here knows that we're talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But isn't it strange that the Holy Spirit will rest on the Son? Don't take that for granted. We tend to take the Spirit for granted. We shouldn't. We have no power without the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit came as a dove and rested on Jesus. This was the indication of the Father's approval of the Son. The Father spoke from heaven, the Son was being baptized, and the Spirit came in a dove. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so the Spirit would come on and rest on him. This is the man, and what will the Spirit do as a part of resting on Jesus? Well, he will, he will give him wisdom. Look at what it says. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, not come down on him, anoint him, and leave. It'll rest on him. The Spirit, so who is the Holy Spirit? The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And so first of all, he'll have wisdom. The Spirit will give the Messiah wisdom. And this wisdom will be infinitely greater than Solomon. Then he'll give him understanding. What's understanding? Well, understanding is the ability to implement the wisdom granted by God. Understanding is a more practical commodity, okay? 
Then he'll give him counsel. Well, what is counsel? Counsel is being able to explain things to people, to instruct them, and to lead them in the right path. So he'll have wisdom. He'll have understand. He'll be able to lead. Okay? He will give him might. He will break them with a rod of iron. A rod he will wield with his strong right arm. A rod that he would wield against his enemies in all the force of his what? What's the perfection of God? Omnipotence. (laughs) Potent. Virile. He will be so potent that nothing and no one will be able to stand against him. So these are the ministry of God's Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, through the coming Messiah that's prophesied by the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord shall the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, So what is knowledge? Well, in Matthew 11, remember I was saying at the beginning that there is, there is no knowledge, there is no science when we throw out theology. If we don't know God, we know nothing. You know, they accuse Christians of being the K-N-O-W nothings. We're the know-nothings. No, actually they're the know-nothings because they won't start with something. They won't start with someone. They don't start with God. And not having not started with God, every conclusion they come to has been corrupted by that horrible deficit at the beginning. And nature abhors a vacuum. They think they can start with a vacuum, insert themselves, and come up with something. But they can't. We are made by him. We have not made ourselves. And so we read what Jesus himself testifies about his knowledge. This is what he says. At that time, Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus said, speaking to his father, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, the PhDs, and the intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing. And you're saying, this is, you know, people are, are having fits in our church that our children aren't all going to college and getting doctorates, right? And, and so, you know, everybody's trying to figure out, what's wrong with us that we're not sending our children off to college and they're not getting in Ivy League schools and they're not, you know? And, you know, I do want you all to know that I, I've... I have been bitten by the bug, and I do have a, I do actually have a Master's of Divinity from Gordon Conwell. <laughs> okay, isn't that impotent? Come on, laugh. Impotent, important. I do believe in an education, but I don't believe in an education for the reason that the world believes in it which is, it is the wealth of the world. The principal wealth of the world is education in a degree. It is more powerful than all the money of Silicon Valley put together. You have more authority with a degree and an education than you do with money. That's not why I want us to pursue higher education. I want us to pursue higher education because we have been the people of the word and the book. And what I see in our church that grieves me is the absence of the pursuit 
of wisdom through the word. And I don't just mean the word of God, I mean the word of nature, which is uh, philosophy and sociology. Not perverse sociology, although there are a lot of perverse sociologists. I think the most perverse professors I had were all sociologists, you know. <laughs> but that's just a theory of mine, okay? <laughs> all my sociologists chain-smoked as they taught us. I just thought you should know that there was somebody living at a time when you could chain-smoke while you gave a lecture at the university. You know? And so... We have to look at this issue of knowledge and we have to realize this issue of knowledge is in play. And there are a lot of competing arguments about knowledge and its importance. And there are a lot of different reasons that people pursue knowledge. An awful lot of the pursuit of knowledge today is simply a function of pride. Remember when the president of Wheaton some years back said that his goal for Wheaton was to increase the minorities in attendance there and increase the intellectual respectability of Wheaton. Well, you're done for. We're done for! We're done for! When a Christian school has the goal of being intellectually respectable, it's done for. Especially in combination with minority enrollment increasing. Now, you, it's not against minorities. That's not the point, all of you idiots who think that right now. So, we have to readjust ourselves so that when we hear that the Spirit of God dwells on him, and it is the Spirit of knowledge, we're not thinking a PhD. What we're thinking is the kind of knowledge that is a celebration of the authority and power of God in this world. How many of you have read The Idea of the University by Cardinal Newman? One. You should read that. You don't begin to understand the failure of the pursuit of knowledge in our world today until you've read that book. How many of you have read Augustine's Confessions? And see, I'm convinced that you will not grow intellectually and you say, well, why should I? Because that's the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom and counsel. You cannot grow without learning to read and to write and to think. Or you can't think without reading and writing, right? And that's why I want our, our children to get an education. And you say, well, yeah, but they don't need to go to college. And I say, oh, yeah, because college is the remedial training that makes up for all the years they've been stupefied by everything that preceded it. Okay, I better, I better back up here. <laughs> you say, oh, not everything. LCA and Cedars and Seven Oaks, they do good education. I say, well, <laughs> okay, I'll keep my mouth shut. We all know that higher education is simply remedial for what people used to learn when they were in grammar school. You realize this. If you don't, go back and read about the literacy of New England in colonial times. Neil Postman talks about it in Amusing Ourselves to Death, highest literacy rate the world has ever seen. That's my dream. My dream is that we will have education that 
our children, when they get to higher education, will have just one-tenth of the instruction and the knowledge that colonial kids had when they got to be teenagers. That's my goal. So it's talking about knowledge. We're in Bloomington, Indiana. Indiana University, 40, 50, 45,000. We have to stop and be very careful that we do not allow the world to define counsel, wisdom, knowledge. And you might think we don't need me to be controversial on this, but we do. Because we think knowledge is like being able to, you know, like a multiple choice test or whatever, you know, and then you've proven that you have knowledge. One of the things I loved about Adam, still love about him, is the fact that Adam tried to be disciplined to read the journals. Did you know that? Adam would actually, listen, I used to go and look in the trash cans of the post office on the east side for interesting reading material, which was free. You know what I found those trash cans filled with? The medical journals of the doctors. At one point, I thought about putting the names up of the doctors who I found their medical journals in the post office trash. (laughs) You know, that'd be a good way of not choosing a doctor, you know? Find out who's tossing all their medical journals into the trash, right? Knowledge, knowledge, knowledge. Do you know what the Bible says about knowledge? It doesn't say that the beginning of knowledge is a bachelor's degree. It doesn't say the beginning of knowledge is uh, Charlotte Mason. It doesn't say the beginning of knowledge, for heaven's sakes, is a classical education. What a bunch of bunk. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's what the Bible says, the fear of the Lord. If any of you read my post this week, Michael was talking at our family Thanksgiving about the fact that she was thankful for COVID. So why was she thankful for COVID? Well, she was thankful for COVID because it pushed a reset button in her home, her marriage, her life. And so... Why would somebody be thankful for COVID pushing a reset? Well, because it readjusts us and it restores to us. COVID has tried its best, her best, his, whatever. It's, it's tried to restore the fear of God to us. Don't you think that much of the anger and irritation that's coming out against the civil authorities is just irritation that we have to be reminded about death? And we have to be reminded about out of the heart the mouth speaks. We, we can't stand what we smell like behind a mask. Come on, be honest. I keep bringing this up and everybody wants to act as if I'm an idiot. My wife goes home, she says, you're an idiot. It has nothing to do with the smell of the mask. Well, she hasn't said that, but when I brought this up before, Mary Lee has thought that I need to, what, explain it more? I don't know. But I mean, you know that out of the heart the mouth speaks. So... When you smell your mask, you realize that this is a vivid reminder given you by God of what your heart is. Have you thought about this? You should think about this. The whole world testifies to the kingdom of God. 
And so then, uh, after Michael was talking, we ta talked about Lincoln, and we went through all the various things about Abraham Lincoln that are sort of, <laughs> you know, on the one hand, he's the greatest hero ever. And on the other hand, yikes, you know, setting aside habeas corpus for starters, you know. I mean, there were a bunch of things about Lincoln that were sort of gloriously awful or awfully glorious. But then at the end, after, I don't know, Jonathan, you're the one that asked it, how long? We talked about an hour, hour and a half probably. But then at the very end, after everybody had talked about Lincoln, I said to Jonathan, but I, he had started by saying, what do you think of Lincoln? And at the very end, I said, I love him. Really? After all that, you love him? I said, yeah, because he feared God. And that's all it takes anymore for me to love a man. I just have to see some slight hint of the fear of God in him. And so that means I have to stay away from all the Presbyterians. Because I don't think there's any fear of God in the Presbyterian church. But boy, do I see the fear of God in this church. You know who always gives me the greatest strength on Sunday morning is our widows. They fear God. They're meek. They're humble. And one of them has a tremendous sense of humor. Dry as dry can be. That's you, Linda. Shout out to Linda. So this is Jesus. He says, what? Let's remind ourselves. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. And then he says this. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Knowledge, you want to talk knowledge? You can't begin to know anything until Jesus begins to open you up to the Father. This is why I said to my dear sister, after she led us in prayer a couple of years ago, and she got done. And I had noticed she never, ever will pray to the Father. And so I, I spoke to her, and I said, Deborah, we cannot know God except his Father. And here the Bible tells us that Jesus has to reveal the Father to us. He doesn't reveal a person to us. He doesn't reveal a substance. He doesn't reveal a, a perfection. You know, he doesn't reveal love to us. He reveals God is love to us. And God is our loving Heavenly Father. And that's how we pray to him. Beautiful love between the Father and the Son. The Son gives us the knowledge of God. If you have not read J.I. Packer's Knowing God, it's a life-changing book. Read it. Celebrate his promotion to heaven recently by reading Knowing God. Now,
you remember all these different things that the Spirit of God gives us. He gives us what? Wisdom. Gives us understanding. He gives us knowledge. He gives us counsel. He gives us power. He gives to the anointed one, the Messiah, all these traits, all these perfections. And the next thing that's said in verse 3 is, and he, speaking of the Messiah, the one the Holy Spirit dwells on, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. (laughs) You thought I was off on a rabbit trail earlier, right? But I wasn't. Although I often am. But he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Now this seems weird. Remember I said earlier that it seems strange that the Spirit of God would dwell on the Son. Well, they're the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why would, you know? Well, here the same thing is true. What on earth? Why? What does it say again? Well, it says, if you look at the previous verse, verse 2, it says this. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Then verse 3, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So it mentions that one twice. Now that's weird, right? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the fear of the Lord. Why would Jesus, the Son of God, delight in the fear of God? The word Lord here is the word Yahweh. And so it is the personal name that God names himself with for his people, the Jews. Messiah will delight in the fear of Yahweh. Why would Jesus delight in the fear of God? Now, there's an obvious answer, but there's an unobvious answer, okay? The unobvious answer is that Jesus lived, and maybe this is a, a helpful way of putting it, Jesus did not live in the fear of man. And one thing you have to understand, we can't repeat this enough, is that there are only two places we live. We either live in the fear of man or we live in the fear of God. The teenage years are all about choosing whom you will fear. And our foolish children choose to use social media to create a person. And therefore, they live in the fear of man. It's impossible to live your life on social media without cultivating something that has the approval of men. And so you live in the fear of men. By God's kindness, most of our children prior to teenage years live in the fear of their father, and that's the closest they will come, most of them, to fearing God. But by the time they become teachers or teenagers, we know that they're going to leave the home, right? <clears throat> and so they need to begin to be self, uh, what would the word be, self Directed, self-individuated. Well, how are they going to be individuated? It's so helpful to have you guys here this morning because I know you. I love you. And listen, Elliot, don't fear a man. Don't. There are only two ways you can live. You'll fear a man 
And the bondage of men today is awful. It used to be that you could go somewhere and be away from them, the idiots and the oppressors. But you can't because you have your smartphone. You can't even escape them in Alaska. You got a satellite phone. You can't get away from men to be feared today. And you say, well, I don't fear them. And any, any man who tells me he doesn't fear men is a man who has not the slightest bit of self-knowledge. And so Jesus doesn't fear men. Now, that's encouraging. And you see this. You know, I have a habit of writing FS in the margin everywhere that there's anything said about a leader, typically a pastor or a priest, who is, that indicates he's, he's good or bad, a true shepherd or false shepherd. And so one of the things that I notice is what they say about Jesus to point to the fact that he's a true shepherd. It's a, it's a wonderful way of reading scripture to just see how do people know that Jesus is a good shepherd? Well, one of the ways they know this is that it is said about Jesus um, in Matthew 22, it says, then the Pharisees, and you know the Pharisees hated Jesus, right? They hated him. And so when your enemies say something about you, so listen to what they say. And the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what they said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, now listen to what they said. They said, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. And any of you know what comes next? Defer to no man. For you are not partial to any. It's one of my favorite things that's said about Jesus, right? He defers to no man. What a relief. Isn't this why we love David Carell? Can you imagine David Carell deferring to anybody but me? And you laugh when I say that, but the fact is... Uh, David Carell has ways of signaling to me that I just have been, normally I would say an ass, but I won't say that in church. He'll make it clear to me. Jesus deferred to no man. This is the great, great privilege that I had growing up with my father. The only man he ever deferred to was my mother. <laughs> you know, my mother had the ability to put moves on my father that I don't think he, he uh, ran into anywhere else in his life. And right before he died, I remember one Christmas, she comes downstairs and it had been a bad evening and she announces to me in the front hall, I should talk to him more often. That was how she summed up the talk she had just been giving my father. And she was indicating to me that Christmas would be good this year. Christmas was always hard for us, right? What a wonderful thing to have a Savior who defers to no man. 
You realize this, don't you? That Jesus doesn't defer to you. Jesus doesn't want your approval. And so when you have God's approval, you really have it. Jesus only feared God. And he delighted in the fear of God. I hope that helps you understand how God the Son could fear God the Father. He lived to please his Father. Now, there's another aspect to this, and that is that Jesus himself feared God, but Jesus also delighted in seeing the fear of God in anyone else. And so he delighted in the fear of God. He delighted in Rachel. Y'all with me? Because Rachel fears God. He delighted in Rita Cuffey. He delights in Frank Mead. We all know these people fear God. And how delightful they are. What a relief to run into one person in the world today who doesn't fear a man, but fears only God. Right? Right? We don't look down our noses in Scripture when we run into people that fear men. We understand them, you know. Remember that wonderful account of the man born blind, which is one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture, you know. Jesus heals the dude, you know, he's born blind, Jesus heals him. And I mean, it throws the religious leaders into conniptions. They're just freaked out that this dude, everybody knows Jesus healed him. And so there's all this ruckus and machinade. And I love the scene as a narrative, as a story, where the, the religious leaders call the parents in, you know. And they say to the parents, you know, is this your son, you know, did it, did it, did it. Is this, you know, and they know what's at stake because these people are going to kick them out of the synagogue. And the synagogue was the town square for Jews. It was the public life, you know. They're going to get kicked out, you know. Unclean, unclean, you know. And so they look at the religious leaders, and on the one hand, there's the son who sees. <laughs> on the other hand, there are the religious leaders who are still blind, you know. And is this your son? Was it, you know, has he been healed? Was he? And they say, well, there he is. Why don't you ask him yourself? Why don't you ask him? I mean, they're scared out of their wits. And then you've got the scenes of the disciples all running as Jesus is crucified. I love Peter. And he denied Jesus three times. I don't look down on anybody that fears man. A lot of my worst traits are because of how terribly I fear the disapproval of other people. But oh, I love it when a man doesn't fear a man. I get such strength from it. You know that every Sunday before I come up here to preach, I ask David to come in the kitchen with me and pray for me. 
I get such strength from David. Max, Pastor Max. People, can we, can we please return to delighting in the fear of God? Can we please? And you say, oh yes, I want to fear God. And I say, okay, then you've got to turn your back on your family. Because always and forevermore, your family is the greatest competitor with God for fearing. That's why Jesus says you have to hate your father and mother and brother and sister. He doesn't mean walk around slapping them in the face. What he means is they're the competitor to you fearing me and loving me. And so you hate them. And of course, once we hate our family, as Jesus tells us to, we then begin to love them. Because our love isn't a function of what we want them to think of us and how we want them to treat us, but our love is a function of wanting to see their souls in heaven. I want to read what Calvin says here. Um, No, I'm sorry, a guy named McCulloch. He says, this filial, this family fear and reverence of Jehovah is the fruit of the Spirit, the offspring of faith whereby it is cherished. Then he says this, it's accompanied by love, which preserves it from degenerating into slavish, slavish dread. And then he says, fear is the companion of hope, which it keeps from falling into presumption. Okay, so you have hope in Jesus Christ. Hope always degenerates into presumption unless it's accompanied with the fear of God. He will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what he see, his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear. And of course, that's just obvious, right? I mean, the minute you stop fearing men, then you're going to judge on the basis of God and his truth, not on the basis of what will give you the best result in terms of your life. And that's what it says. He delights in the fear of God. Hey, guess what? You know, his judgments are right and true. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Now listen. You know how I said earlier that we have to be very careful in a community where Indiana University is. All the talk of what curriculum is best, classical education, all the importance on degrees, all this stuff. We have to inoculate ourselves against the stupidity of modern education, right? We have to learn to think the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Okay. Well, the same thing is true when it comes to the poor. The entire world we live in is lying to you about where poverty actually exists. Okay? The world does not give a rip about those who are really poor. The world couldn't care less about the poor. Come on, people. I'm going to say it again. The world could not care less about the poor. And you say, oh, no, 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 we've evolved. We've progressed. You wouldn't believe on Facebook. It's, everybody's very concerned about the poor. I say, no, they're not. 
Concern for the poor is the way the proud man postures himself in such a way as to become prouder. And so all we see today is just this unbelievable explosion of posturing about care for the poor. No one who says that they're opposed to racism is in any way opposed to racism. No one actually cares to oppose racism. What they're all doing is posturing themselves in such a way that they appear to be on the side of the poor. Okay? And how do I know this? Well, number one, I've lived. <laughs> okay? And what I've noticed is that talk is cheap. The men talk a lot. It goes in one ear, out the other. It has no weight, no gravity. Because the same things have been being said in my life for, what, 66 years now. I've watched a steady succession from the time I was about 15 of people using every means they can publicly to claim that they care for the blacks, they care for the migrant farm workers, they care for this, they care for that, they care for the other thing. And no one cares. And you say, well, how can you say that? And I say, because I've observed the same things being said by the same class of people, and nothing's changed. You say, oh, yeah, it's gotten better. Yeah, it's gotten a little better. The laws have gotten some better, much worse. But, listen, every single time on social media that somebody claims to be opposing racism, say, if you were opposing racism, you would start with that class of human beings that are far and away the least powerful and the most oppressed, which is the unborn children. And when I see you demonstrating the slightest concern about the real slaves that are alive and well today, and you say, oh, no, they're dead. I say, oh, by gum, you're right. So, so there's never been an Uncle Tom's Cabin written about the unborn. <laughs> you know, they can't even have anybody take their testimony and make you feel what they feel in the womb, unless you're Jonathan, you know. <laughs> Jonathan thinks he remembers being born. I mean, how do you get somebody to empathize with a child in the womb? Do not be sucked in by everybody that's posturing that they're concerned for the poor. Or for blacks or for the Southern Hemisphere, for Argentinians. We're all mourning with you this week. <laughs> the hand of God died. Listen, brothers and sisters, it is absolutely true that Jesus and I don't want to be disrespectful, Jesus is a one-off. There is no mold. He alone is on the side of the poor. And the best among us only begins to understand what it is to judge for the poor and to judge for the afflicted. And don't you 
ever, ever, ever try to cop a posture in front of me that you're an advocate for the poor and that you want justice for the afflicted. Don't ever try it. Don't ever try it. The hypocrisy of social media today. Jesus judges the poor and the afflicted. Jesus cares about the oppressed. Jesus loves them. Jesus loves the little babies in their mother's womb who are about to be shredded by Planned Parenthood. And he loves them even if we can't empathize and even if no novels have been written to make us cry about their state. And every bit of their blood in God's time will rise up out of the soil of this land. And that is the crowning reality of the United States of America is the riot of blood that consumes our nation. And what God says through his prophet Isaiah is with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And then, guess what? It says, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Listen, if you hear those words and they don't make you tremble, you don't understand what they're saying. You will be found to be an oppressor of the poor and the afflicted. You yourself. And so you want to flee to Jesus for peace. Because the peace that Facebook and your friends give you, your wife, it's no peace. It's a fake peace. You can get your wife to say anything to you. <laughs> you know, actually, maybe not. But a lot that you don't deserve, she'll say to you. She'll tell you, you, she, you, she'll tell you she loves you if you say you love her. And that's just too easy. <laughs> but God will not judge on the basis of desiring our approval. And so God will vindicate the poor. God will rescue the afflicted. And our hearts should rejoice in this, knowing that this will cause us pain. Okay? Okay? I'm sorry if I've been hard on you telling you you don't care about the poor and the oppressed, but it's just true. It's just true. And it's most true on social media. And so what I would like you to do, I was thinking about this before I came up here to preach, is I would like you to um, think of some people who are really oppressed here in your life. Don't look at television. Don't send money overseas. Don't look at the pictures. Look at people here this week and take the side of the afflicted and the poor. Okay? Do it here 
now. Be here now. Okay? Now, one last thing. Righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And it says at the very end of this text, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, a little boy will lead them. In other words, the result of all of this is going to be peace. Real peace. You remember Jesus says he's going to give us peace. And then he says this. He says, I won't give you peace the way the world gives you peace. There's always a a fake. There's always a counterfeit. Okay? He won't give us peace the way the world gives us peace. And so it says a little earlier in Isaiah, unto us a child is born. This is the Messiah. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and come on, come on, Elliot, and the Prince of, uh, say the word peace, Elliot, go ahead, good, good, the Prince of Peace. It's very interesting here how scripture uses animals to illustrate the absence of peace. And we don't even begin to understand that because to us, wilderness is the consummate good. You know, it was in the wilderness and therefore it was peaceful. When Mary Lee and I, or I guess maybe when I, I don't know. Anyhow, when we were in Africa once, we went across a river into a wildlife refuge. And as we crossed the river, I noticed that there was a village there that ran this little hand-powered ferry, you know, and around the village were walls. Then I was reading this history of Africa, and it was telling us that you can actually show the development of Africa in large part by the presence or absence of elephants, because the elephants would run through the villages and kill people. They'd just step on them. And so the, 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 the population and the migrant uh, action of populations in Africa is connected to the wild animals who would kill them. And that's why there's blockades, palisades up around the huts there by, because, and then as we went across, you know, they were saying most of the people that die here die because they're out fishing and they're drunk and it's on a Friday night and all of a sudden, is it crocodile or or alligator in Africa? Anybody know? Crocodile. All of a sudden, the crocodiles come up to the dugout canoes and what? And the guy's dead. Do you remember that God said that he steadily brought his people into the promised land? You remember this? And the reason he did it slowly was so that the animals wouldn't overrun the land. And do you remember that when the people were sent back to Samaria, the area that became Samaria, do you remember it says that they didn't worship the true God? And do you remember what it says? It says because they didn't worship God, the only God, Yahweh, that God sent lions who attacked them and killed them. We have a lot of trouble thinking of wild animals as being a threat to us.
but the prophet Isaiah uses the natural bloodthirst of nature. I love that little quote. They say that God is love while all nature red in tooth and claw. In other words, he made nature and it's red in tooth, but they say God is love. Well, it's a similar thing about how we say about Jesus. Well, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. I want to end with reading from John Calvin about this, okay? And a little child will lead them. This means that beasts, which formerly were cruel and untamable, will be ready to yield cheerful obedience so that there will be no need of violence to restrain the animal's fierceness. And yet we must attend to the spiritual meaning that all who become Christ's followers will obey Christ, though they may formerly have been savage, wild beasts, and will obey him in such a manner that as soon as he, Jesus, lifts a finger, they will follow his footsteps. His people shall be willing. Those who are not endued with this meekness do not deserve to be ranked among the sheep. In other words, if you're a hostile sheep who creates divisions in the church of Jesus Christ, you're not a sheep. That's what Calvin's saying. Let us therefore permit ourselves to be ruled and governed by him. And let us willingly submit to those whom he has appointed over us, though they appear to be little children. Now that's me. <laughs> I'm always aware as I preach that I kind of, you know, I'm weird. You know, I know, I know. My wife always has this look of horror on her face while she listens to me preach. I never have her approval, you know. I know I'm weird. So I'm a little punk. A mouthy little punk. But God's put me over you. And so don't be a ferocious wild beast. Because Jesus pacifies us. And makes us willing to submit to stupid pastors who preach. Okay? And so humble yourself and let a little child lead you. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the degreed and that you have fed them to us from your hand. Now, help them to come alive in us. I pray for the children listening that you will help them, that they will not fear the approval or disapproval of their playmates and of the people in high school but that they will live for your approval. We thank you for the Messiah, Lord. We thank you for our Lord who frees us from all fear. And we pray in his name.